Hello and welcome to the Transforming Lives Together podcast, a ministry of St. Bartholomew's Anglican Church in Tonawanda, New York. This is episode 12 of the podcast, and we continue with Life's Meaning and Purpose, an in-depth study of the Gospel of John, taught by the rector of St. Bartholomew's, Father Arthur Ward. In this episode, Father Ward finishes chapter 4 and begins to unpack chapter 5, focusing on verses 1 through 23. Before we turn it over to Father Ward, we would like to say thank you for listening to the Transforming Lives Together podcast, and we pray you are blessed by what you hear each week. If you're just starting to listen to this podcast, we invite you to check out previous episodes to get caught up to speed with this study. And now, with this week's lesson in the Gospel of John, here is Father Ward. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another day you've given us to live, to worship, to enjoy each other, to enjoy you. And we thank you for the privilege it is to study your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit now would help us to focus on John's gospel and the fact that it has been with us now for nearly 2,000 years and it is a testimony to who Jesus is. And how when we trust in Him, we have life's meaning and purpose. Not just for the here and now, but for eternity. So we pray now you bless our time together. Enlighten your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you were with me last week, you know that we looked at John chapter 4. And the account of Jesus in Samaria, where He spoke with a woman, a Samaritan woman who was living with a man, and he led her to faith in himself as the Son of God, as the Messiah, and then she in turn told the townspeople, the elders, and they came and uh, sought out Jesus because she said that he told her all about her life. He knew her. And the fact of the matter that he was a Jewish man a rabbi, a man of significance, speaking to a woman, a Samaritan, and a woman of ill repute because she was living with a man, speaks volumes of the character of Jesus, that he is there to break down the walls that divide us ethnically and socially. And more importantly, he is there to demonstrate that God loves every man, woman, and child because every man, woman, and child has been made in God's image. But it is only through Christ that we can truly have the spiritual knowledge and wisdom to understand our purpose and our meaning in life. And Jesus first goes to the Jews, then he goes to the Samaritans. And today, tonight, it may be that he actually goes to a Gentile. And that is the nobleman. And so we pick it up from where we left off last week. If you would turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4, as we close out that chapter and then go ahead into John chapter 5. So we read that therefore he, that is Jesus, came again to Cana of Galilee. So he's back to Cana. Remember, that's where he performed his first miracle at a wedding in Cana of Galilee in John chapter 2. So he's back to Cana, back to his home region his hometown, where he had made the water wine. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is about 16 miles 
I think I have northwest. Is that what I have in your notes? Northwest or northeast? Northeast. 16 miles northeast of Cana. Now, if we can show the map. Jesus was in Jerusalem. He performed many miracles in Jerusalem during the Feast of Passover. Then he travels through Samaria. He stops at Sychar, the village there, and ministers and bears witness to the Samaritan woman. The village comes to Christ. Then he travels north to Galilee. And you'll see, you see where Cana is? Just in the middle of that kind of gray region below where it says Galilee. And so right there. And so to the 16 miles to the northeast, keep going to the right. There, keep going, keep going. There's Capernaum. So when this nobleman, and by the way, royal official, that means he was most likely connected to Herod Antipas's court. And he could very well have been a Gentile. So scholars will often say that it could be, you know, Jesus going to the Jews, then the Samaritans, and then the Gentiles. There's that pattern. It's the same pattern that Jesus called the disciples to follow after Pentecost. He said, you will be my witnesses. You'll be in you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit and you'll be my witnesses first in Jerusalem, then Judea, Samaria, and then to remotest parts of the world, the Gentile world. So when he had heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. And imploring, that means that he was begging Jesus. So Jesus said to him, unless... You people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Now that seems like a harsh statement, but I want us now to go up to 43. Verse 43. Why was Jesus maybe seeming a little harsh? Maybe was a little bit wanting to challenge the man and those who were around him? Well, we can get a clue from the uh, previous verses in 43, which I really should have started at, but that's okay. After the two days, he went forth from there into Galilee. So after two days in Samaria, he went forth from there into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. There are other passages in the synoptics that talk about how Jesus couldn't do miracles in Galilee because of unbelief. And how many people were like, this guy is just Joseph's son, you know. And so... We then read in 45, So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast. For they themselves also went to the feast. So they had seen Jesus at work in Jerusalem performing these miracles, and then they were expecting him now to perform miracles. And so the focus was on what Jesus could do for them. The focus was kind of like... Um, What's that word? I'm like a circus. You know, big show. Let's see Jesus walk the high wire. And that attitude, Jesus never condoned. Jesus did not want to be known as a miracle worker. He wanted to be known as the Son of God, the Messiah, the one who gives life. So there's the background. So, the royal official probably was caught up in all the euphoria and the excitement. He realized his son was dying. And so he goes to Jesus, imploring Jesus to save his son. 
And that is why Jesus says to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Again, we see a recurring theme throughout John's Gospel. We don't believe simply because of the signs and the wonders. We don't follow God simply because of what He can do for us. We follow Christ, the Son of God, because of who He is. Verse 49, the royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son lives. Now, the man has a choice at this point. Now, even though Jesus is saying, hey, wait a minute, you're only seeking me because of signs and wonders, Jesus shows his compassion, his concern, his mercy, his power, and makes a simple statement to the man, your son lives. At that point, the man has a choice. The man can say, wait a minute, wait a minute, no, you need to be with me in order for this to happen. But if The man says that to Jesus, then what is he saying? That Jesus, I don't believe you. I don't really trust you. Or the other choice the man had was, actually there's three choices, it was to go his way and just forget about it. this This isn't really, I don't believe it. Or he could believe the word without seeing the results, but still trusting in Jesus and then moving forward. And that is what the man does, and that is what is being highlighted here. That is the point we want to take, in addition to the fact that it demonstrates who Jesus is as the Son of God. And so notice what happens. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. That is a spiritual principle for walking with God. Every day. That is not just a spiritual principle for walking with God, but that is a principle for life because everything we do in life, I want you to think about this for a moment, everything we do in life is based on a trust that something's going to happen in the future. You don't do anything without planning that something is going to go happen in the future. For example, our kids, our children trust that they're going to graduate from high school. As long as they do the work, as long as they keep up, most kids have no doubt they're going to graduate high school. They know it's a challenge. They know it's not going to be always easy. There's going to be ups and downs. But they know because of what the teachers provide, because of what their parents provide, because of their own know-how, they are going to graduate. However, if they did not think they were going to graduate high school, if they did not trust in if they do A, B will result, would they ever graduate from high school? No. Now some people will fall into that trap. Some kids will, maybe because of the bad things that happen in their life, maybe because of a learning disability. The fact of the matter is, everything we accomplish in life starts first with a belief, and then we act on that belief. And the more we act on it, the more we grow And the more we grow, the more we accomplish, and the more we accomplish, the more we get to those goals that we want to see fulfilled in our lives. It's a principle of life. And it's no different when it comes to our walk with Jesus. We have to trust Him. We have to follow even before we see everything in its fullness. And that's exactly what the man does. And so then we read, As he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better, 
Then they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. Again, that would be 7 p.m. Roman time or 1 p.m. Jewish time. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives, and he himself believed. Now, he could have said that was just a coincidence. The world and people who don't trust in God like to look at things as, oh, that's just a coincidence. But we know, after following the God who made it all and everything is working together according to his plan, that there aren't any coincidences. And more importantly, one knows that it wouldn't be a coincidence because Jesus said this to him and boom, it happened at the same time. But, it, but the fact that it happened when Jesus said to them is the way that the author, John the Apostle, and even Jesus conveying to the man and instilling in him faith was that this is not a coincidence. The fever just didn't go away on its own. So that would be important that it happened right when Jesus said it would. So there would be no, and it's not just a coincidence. No, there's purpose to it. And as a result, the man believes, but not only the man, but it ends up the whole household believes. Now do you see the parallel with what happened with the Samaritan woman? The Samaritan woman believed Jesus, and then she told others. The royal official believed Jesus, and then he told his family, and they all believed. That's our call. When we come to Christ, it isn't to be kept to ourselves. We are commanded to go and let others know as well. Verse 54. This again is a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Now what's interesting is there are seven signs in John's Gospel that we find in the first 12 chapters. Seven is the number of completion. Obviously, John says there are many more signs that Jesus did. We know that from the synoptics, and we just know that because of three years of ministry, three and a half years of ministry, Jesus would have done literally thousands of miracles. But for whatever reason, John doesn't If you keep reading, he doesn't say this is the third sign, the fourth sign, the fifth sign, the sixth sign. This is the last time he actually numbers them. And I think it's simply because he's highlighting that these two signs occurred in Cana of Galilee. Highlighting Jesus' hometown where the others took place in other areas. So that concludes chapter 4. Now we go to a third sign, the healing of a paralyzed man in Bethesda. And so if we would, let's pick it up. Verse 1, after these things, there was a feast of the Jews. Now, this is the one feast, normally John identifies the feasts. But in this chapter, he doesn't identify it. So we don't know what feast this is. It probably is not the Passover. Uh, But we don't really know which Jewish feast it is because he doesn't identify it. So it really doesn't matter. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem, so he's back to Jerusalem, and now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. Archaeologists have found this. It is near the present-day church called the Church of St. Anne. I've been there as well. Many of you who have been to Jerusalem have been there. In the next slide. You can see the excavations that have been done next to this church. And they have found four walls and then a center uh, going through through the pool, the dividing. So there's the five porticos. Uh, Let's see the next slide as it would look in the ancient 
in Jerusalem itself. So there is the pool. You can see the the four sides and then the one in the center. Uh, And so there would be people who were lame and crippled and blind. They would go to these pools, which were most likely fed by underground springs, and they would go there for healings, hoping that healing would take place. Uh, Ancient history uh, writings have references to the fact that the water was reddish and so uh, most likely had minerals that had maybe healing properties as well. So we read here in verse 3, In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. And then we read, Waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in and was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. So, people were healed when the waters were stirred up by an angel of the Lord who stirred up the waters. Now, this is a kind of a, of all the passages in the New Testament, this is the most kind of maybe out there. Now, you notice that it's in brackets. You know why it's in brackets? Look now down to number two there, the bottom of the page. What does it say? Early MSS, that's manuscripts, do not contain the remainder of verse three nor verse four. In other words, all the manuscripts, remember, our Bible is based, not just based, but is the translations of the original, or, or I shouldn't say the original original, but of ancient manuscripts. We have thousands of them, and we can compare and contrast them. So you know that what you're getting is accurate. It hasn't changed over time. But what's interesting is that all the manuscripts we have found before the 4th century, that would be before like 300 A.D., all the earliest manuscripts do not include verses 3 and 4, or half of 3 and verse 4. So that would indicate that it probably was not part of the original of John's Gospel, but was added by a scribe to maybe highlight more about maybe the traditions But I find it very fascinating that it's not in any of the early ones. So I would would say that it probably wasn't. Does it really matter? Not really, because the point is not the angel of the Lord doing the healing. Ultimately, it's Jesus who does the healing. But I do find it interesting that it's not in our earliest manuscripts. So let's continue in verse 5. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. So that's a long time. He's been paralyzed. He hasn't been able to to move. And if you are paralyzed, you know, what happens? Atrophy sets in. So there's really nothing he can do about it. When Jesus saw him lying there and that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? Now you might think that's an odd question, but it really isn't. Remember, everything that we have in God's Word is not meant simply for the time period, but for all time. And it has certain spiritual principles that are applicable for everyone. And there are three reasons why Jesus asks this question. A, to ask the man who has been so used to being in this condition, do you really want to get out of it? Do you really think you can get out of it? 
because he's probably been resigned to the fact that it's hopeless. And Jesus always wants to give us hope. He always wants people to be shaken out of their hopelessness state, right? You think of depression. Depression is all about going into a state of hopelessness and helplessness. That man, I'm sure, felt hopeless and helpless. He was depressed. And so Jesus said, hey, do you, do you want to get well? Like, Wake up. It's, it's possible. Is it possible? That's the first reason why he asked that question. The second reason is that sometimes there are people in this world, it's hard to believe, but it's true, who would rather stay in their debilitated state than really get help and healing. I know we don't believe it, but it's true. Some people like the attention. Some people like the fact that they're somehow being able to be provided for and they don't have to do anything. But any psychologist, and I think we all know that, and again, not the majority of people, but there are people who want to stay in their condition. And this leads me to the third reason for this question that's even more important. Remember, everything Jesus does, while it does address the physical, it ultimately gets deeper to the spiritual root of things. And that is the question for all people is, do you really want to get spiritually well? Do you really want to do what it takes to get spiritually right with the Lord? And brothers and sisters, do you know for many people, they will say no. It's one thing to be healed of a sickness, and that's very acute. And most people say, yeah, I want to stop the suffering. But when it comes to spiritual illness, that oftentimes doesn't have acute suffering symptoms in the short term, people will say, no, I don't. I don't have time. Not a priority for me. That's a little too nutsy for me, right? And so that's why that, that question is so important. And so the man doesn't even answer yes. The man gives excuses. What does he say? Sir, I have no man to put me into the water, or the pool, when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Cuts in line. And Jesus simply said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Doesn't even lay hands on him. Doesn't even ask the man to believe. He just commands the man. Now the man has to, has to take action, but I, I think he's probably so overwhelmed by the power of God, and he gets up. We're told he picks up his pallet and he walks. And then we read, and as we meet immediately, right? He became well. Then we read very profound. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So Jesus does something really good, but it's the Sabbath. Now why is that important to note? Because for the Jews, the Sabbath was a day of rest. It was a day of honor to the Lord. And it was a day that they were commanded not to work. Now that original command comes from Exodus. And in the Old Testament and the Mosaic Law, it does not give you a list of all the things you can't do. And so the understanding was that you would refrain from your normal employment, your normal duties that you would have to do every day throughout the week. Isn't that what we do, right? On our Sabbaths? Doesn't mean you don't do anything. But what had developed over the centuries, what was called the oral tradition, and remember the oral tradition, oral tradition is what Jesus rebuked 
because the oral tradition added more rules and laws and regulations and specifics in an attempt to keep the existing Mosaic law. And we all know that law by nature just keeps growing and growing and growing. Go to any of the libraries, any of the case law, any of the courts of our land, and you will just see volumes and volumes and volumes, and it just gets more and more and more because we make more laws to interpret the existing law. And the Jews did the same thing, so that by the time of Jesus, there were, I think it was 39 activities you could not do on the Sabbath. And one of those was picking something up and then taking it to another place and setting it down. And that's exactly what the man was doing, right? And so let's read what happened. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it is the Sabbath and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them and he said, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. Now that's a very interesting statement. One that you cannot find, I don't believe, in any of the other miracles. Where Jesus, now of course he tells the adulterous woman, you know, go sin no more. But after Jesus heals someone, go sin no more. What does this mean? A couple things. And this is where interpretation comes in. It could very well mean that the man was in his condition because of a sin that he had committed or something he had done wrong or a lifestyle. We don't know. It's possible. Most sickness is not the direct result of sins. But we all know that some is, right? Some sickness, sometimes people get sick and ill because of poor choices in their lives. And this could highlight that possibility, that there was something in his life. But even more importantly, not so much a past sin, but there was something in his heart. He never had to say, I believe. All he did was he benefited from Jesus. He was healed. He got up and walked. That's all he did. And the reason why I think there might have been something off in him still spiritually, and Jesus was trying to call him back to repentance, and he really wasn't totally saved yet, is notice then what happens. After Jesus tells him, go sin no more. Notice what this guy does. Verse 15. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. He went and told on him. Did you catch that? They didn't come to him. And ask him again. When they asked him originally, he said, I don't know. But now he's actually going to them and telling them, oh, it's Jesus who made me well. And he fully knew that that would get him into trouble. And he was not taking responsibility for himself, carrying a pallet. He was blaming Jesus. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And this is a great answer. Now, of course, we know from the other accounts in and Mark, and, and Matthew, and I think even Luke, one of the big things that the Jewish authorities were attacking Jesus was, well, basically him healing on the Sabbath, doing good. I mean, not just the man carrying the pallet, that was what they were upset about, but the fact that Jesus actually was healing. But notice how Jesus responds, verse 17, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. 
He's the Lord of the Sabbath, right? And he's saying, God isn't stopping his good work. I'm not going to stop my good work. You've totally missed the whole point. The Sabbath was not meant to be an oppressive law, keeping the Sabbath. It was actually meant for us, right? Man was not made for the Sabbath, Jesus says in the synoptics, but the Sabbath for man. It's for our benefit. And yet they took what is supposed to be for our benefit and turned it upside down and made it burdensome so they could point the finger at people and so that they control people. And then Jesus then goes and he presents a series of testimonies of witnesses about who he is. He first starts with him describing himself in relation to his father. Let's look at this now. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, in liberal circles, in these universe, some of these universities, and even some seminaries, if you talk about like liberation theology and Roman Catholicism, people like to emphasize that Jesus was a revolutionary, that Jesus was all about addressing injustice, that Jesus was all about establishing a new society, right? No, 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 no. That is not primarily why Jesus came. Jesus came to reveal the fact that he is the son of God who was going to die on the cross so that we could have a relationship eternally with his father and so that we could have a life of meaning and purpose in the here and now and eternal life so that we could understand the kingdom of God and live for the kingdom of God. And so Jesus was killed primarily, was murdered, not because he was a revolutionary calling for rebellion against Rome, He wasn't even primarily killed or murdered by the religious authorities because he was telling the people to overthrow them. He was murdered because he said, I am the Son of God. I am the Messiah. I and my Father are one. He was committing blasphemy. Remember when the high priest tore the robes when he was brought before them? Blasphemy. He's committing blasphemy. Now, of course, There was the political elements to it, but that's not the primary reason. But the Satan and the spirit of darkness and deception always wants to get people off the main focus. It's the same thing about getting focused on the signs and the wonders rather than who Jesus is and what he's trying to do. He's trying to transform us from the inside out and thereby transform society, but it has to come from within, not from outside structures. That doesn't mean God isn't concerned about injustice. That doesn't mean that we don't work for for those who are downtrodden and stuff, but that's not the primary emphasis, just as the primary emphasis is not just about focused only on healing, physical healing. More than that. It's all about spiritual healing first and foremost, and then everything else will fall into place. Verse 14, Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. So we've got the seeing and the doing. Both are doing the same seeing and doing. Verse 20, For the Father loves the Son. So there is an intimate relationship between the Father and the Son. So there's a distinction there. If there was no distinction between Father and Son, as what some Unitarian or what they would be called of, Oneness groups, they don't believe in the Trinity. They believe the Trinity are just different names for one God. That's ridiculous. Because you can't 
have love with just yourself. Oh yeah, you can love yourself, but that's not true love. Love always has to involve another party. And so Jesus is talking about how the Father loves Him as the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing. And the Father will show Him greater works than these so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life life to whom He wishes. So both the Father raises the dead and gives life, and so does the Son. For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor Who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. The Father gives judgment to the Son. Why? Because it's the Son who died on the cross for us. He's the one who paid the penalty. Not the Father. The Father gave up His Son, showing the love, but the Son was the actual one who died on the cross for us. And so notice too what it, He says. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who's in You've been listening to the Transforming Lives Together podcast, a ministry of St. Bartholomew's Anglican Church in Tonawanda, New York. For more information about the church, including a list of our service times, please visit our website at www.stbartston.org. Again, that's www.stbartston.org. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a five-star rating or a positive review. Both will help in reaching more people with this podcast. If you're on Facebook, head over to facebook.com slash transforming lives together podcast. Again, that's facebook.com slash transforming lives together podcast and give us a like. We hope you will tune in next time as we continue with Life's Meaning and Purpose, an in-depth study of the Gospel of John. Until then, we leave you with these verses from John's first letter. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. We accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater, because it is the testimony of God which He has given about His Son. God bless you.